So domicile is the loss of home, which is not the same thing as losing your housing. It can be. So there's physical domicile, which is mm -hmm. I destroy your home by destroying your house, right? Uh, now, you can think of a, 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 the contrary example. I put you in prison. You have housing. You have shelter. Mm -hmm. But it's, you, you know, uh, the, the one of the intents is it's not your home, right? It's not a home for you, right? So I'm just using those two to, you know, to pull it apart. Yes. So, and then the idea here is that home is basically material engagement that allows you to enact a mythos so that you get worldview attunement. Um, it, is a, it is a symbolic machine in the way mm. that we've been talking about here in which you seriously play out, all right? Now it does work for you as shelter, but mm. I'm not talking about it as a house. I'm talking about it as the way you play in it, which is home, right? Mm. And of course, one of the things kids play is, right, uh, that kind of thing. Um, in fact, there's a book written called Home, just about how profound home is. This is why loneliness and cultural shock are so powerful for you, because mm -hmm. you're not home, you're mm -hmm. not at home. And so that's domicile. Then um, we can talk more about, but think about all the things you do in your house to turn it into a home. I grew up with an expression, you might have heard it. It takes a heap of living to turn a house into a home. <laughs> yeah, I've heard this one, yeah. Also, home is where the heart is. Home is where the heart is. And it was originally home is where the hearth is because people mm. gathered around it and entered into dialogue with each other mm. and entered into right ritual with each other. Yeah. Um, um, like, so think about all the serious play you do in your home, the way you put up art, the way you yes. put up pictures, all right, the way, right. So all this stuff you do, like it's odd. People will often put up pictures of themselves and their family in their in their house. It's like, yeah. why? Are you going to forget these people? No. What is it I'm doing? I'm trying to bind my identity and their identity because those identities are bound to the identity of this house. Right. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to identify it as the this family place, right? Yes. Um, to make and, and a house a the, home. <laughs> right. And yes. notice the play on the word familiarize. To make familiar is also to make it your family. It's exactly ah, the word, right? Yeah. Okay, so so what I'm trying to convey is that home has this incredible mythos, religio mm -hmm. function to it. Now, you also have to recognize that home isn't a single thing. It's a nested thing for you. Mm -hmm. you your whole, like, for example, my home is this apartment, but my home is also Toronto, mm -hmm. Canada, the earth, mm -hmm. right, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the cosmos, in fact, the difference between the word universe and cosmos, one of the ways of understanding it is when I say cosmos, I'm feeling at home in the universe. Mm -hmm. I'm at feeling at home in the physical housing of the universe. Mm. So domicile can go from a loss of a sense of home. How could that happen individually? You're with your beloved partner, you've been married, and then the marriage breaks down. Mm. Divorce, and you don't want to be in that place anymore. Mm-hmm. Or you can't live there anymore because although the physicality of the structure hasn't changed, you're not at home in it anymore because right. the way it was bound to the serious play of your, the cultivation of your love and your relationship, that has lost and you're experiencing domicile. Yes. Now imagine 
that happening not for you individually in your house, but it happening for a civilization within the cosmos. That's domicide on the level of the meaning crisis. Right, right. Okay. That makes sense. I want to read this excerpt. This was from uh, the zombie book, Zombies in Western right. Culture, that you co-authored. Right. Uh, just sort of framing up domicide a little bit. You said, quote, humans are animals who most fundamentally understand what reality is, who we are, and how we ought to live by locating ourselves within larger narratives and meta-narratives that yeah. we hear and tell and that constitute for us what is real and significant. When such narratives collapse, we are lost in the dislocation, fragmentation, and disorientation of homelessness. In short, one suffers a worldview crisis. One runs the risk of losing the plot. And you go on to say that this, you know, so there's this, and this kind of gets back to the homemaker versus the house builder. Yeah. Right, where the house builder is constructing the physical reality, the homemaker is adding the uh, realm of relevance to the to the house, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 And you 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 go on to say about um, domicide here, or I, I guess this is worldview more. So domicide would be the destruction of worldview. Um, that it mirrors the Darwinian fittedness between an organism and its ecological niche. Yes. Yes. You want me to unpack that? So yeah, I the and the I'm very interested there. You know, Darwinism. I'm increasingly compelled by this concept of universal Darwinism. It seems to be everywhere we look, right? Our own cognition has Darwinian elements to it. Yeah. What I'm interested here in getting towards is the the relationship between worldview, uh, domicide and territoriality, right? We're all, sure. you know, we have a physical territoriality. Clearly humans take it a step further, it sounds like. Yeah. So let's try the, the first thing about uh, the, uh, so the the idea, then this is sort of, it's post-Darwinian. Uh, so it's at the cutting edge of uh, neo-Darwinian um, and post-Darwinian philosophy of biology. Another Walsh, by the way, my, my colleague at the University of Toronto, uh, Dennis Walsh, who's cutting edge. Yes, all the important thinkers are at the University of Toronto. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Not that <laughs> right, you're biased. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, um, so this is the idea of niche construction, and it's also been taken up within psychology uh, by, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the, the scientist. But anyway, so niche construction is the idea that not only is the organism being shaped by the environment, the organism is shaping the environment. Mm -hmm. And of course, global warming is a powerful a powerful example of that. We're, mm -hmm. we're engaging in a very, very risky kind of niche construction right mm -hmm. now. Uh, and, and the thing about it is, right, that niche construction, right, can, can you know, it can vary in its scope and its depth and there's all kinds of things. And it can be, there's a thing called the Baldwin effect when it can be happening, uh, like, so the Baldwin effect is, let's say, lang let's say language is originally something like a skill that I have to learn, and mm -hmm. it gets and everybody learns it, but it gives tremendous advantages, right? So for a while, everybody keeps learning it because it gives the advantages. Mm -hmm. But what's evolution going to do if that persists long enough? Evolution is going to start selecting for individuals who can learn it faster and mm -hmm. faster mm -hmm. and faster and faster until 
we become innately linguistic beings. That's mm. the Baldwin effect. And that's, that's another true. kind of example of that niche construction. We change the environment and then the environment changes us and then we change the environment. Right, right. Now, the same thing with all that imaginal projection. It's the same loop, Robert. What yeah. I do is I, I do this imaginal projection right? That shapes the environment in a certain way. And then it shapes me. That's exactly what I'm doing with home. I shape this place yeah. so that I get shaped and then I shape the play. And that's the loop. It's the same yes. loop. And what am I trying to do? I'm trying to, and this is what all of culture is. We, we take that niche construction and we ratchet it up in culture because in culture, what, what is culture? Culture is shaping the world to me and and shaping me to the world that's what culture is right right, right. And, and that process right that within culture Geertz, clifford Geertz called worldview worldview attunement where the modeling of the the shaping of the world to you and the shaping of you to the world are creating what we what what chris and philip and i in the book called worldview attunement in the agent arena relationship right the, the identity right of the agent and the identities in their arena are co-creating, co-determining, co-shaping each other. And domicide at the level of your worldview is a catastrophe, a, tr a tremendous catastrophe, the meaning crisis. So like you, you, you know, that poll in 2017 in the UK, 89% mm -hmm. of, of people polled thought their lives were meaningless. Yeah. And, yeah. and we have overwhelming evidence that that just has, and, and they also are lonely and they feel that their work is futile. Like all of these things are bound up together in the same way, right? Yes. So one, one way of saying this is there's no, they don't feel at home in their lives in, in deep enough way. This is why COVID has, is causing this mental health tsunami because it just, we were already suffering domicide. And then what it yeah. is, it, it, it just accelerated domicide and people were trapped in the, this little tiny narrow home yes. and trapped within the, the meaning making of their own selfhood. And that's not enough. And so domicide got worse. Yes. So people, reach out, people reach out with conspiracy theories and they try to, a conspiracy theory is an imaginal attempt, an irrational imaginal attempt to try and use mythos to home the world. That's what a mm. conspiracy theory is. Hmm. Okay. That that's interesting. So what, and I know in the case of the grassy narrows, which maybe you could speak to a little bit of that and the Hellenistic case of domicile, because this doesn't have to be, you're talking about COVID kind of being this worldview level abstract destruction, but the grassy narrows was very much physical relocation. People sort yeah, of had so their, their yeah. worldview shattered because what I'm getting yeah. at here, and I'm just ahead, being openly transparent is that to the extent that worldview attunement and or domicide is related to actual Darwinian territoriality, I think yeah. we could then map that to property rights because that's how human beings express property rights, or I'm sorry, yes. express territorialities through property rights. Yes. Um, and the, the, the most basic, to not, people get very confused in this area, the most basic form of property is you own you, I own me, right? We each own our own time. That's the yes. most personal form of property. The extension of property is what I combine myself with in the world. I plant a garden, I build a house, whatever. Yes. So yes. I take my self-ownership and extend it into ownership in the world. And yes. so the, the, the thesis I'm sort of exploring here is that if we violate private property rights, 
is that an instigation of domicile? It can be. Um, I mean, so my my concern my concern here is, I mean, I, you're you're doing the Lockean theory, which I get, right? I I remember studying it. Um, what is it? I don't even know what it is. <laughs> it goes back to John Locke. John Locke's oh, okay. idea is that I own my time and labor, and I mix it with other things, and that's how I turn it into my property. Okay. Yes. So John yes. Locke's, yes. John Locke's theory, um, and that, that's the theory of, of value that John Locke proposed. Hmm. Now, the, the thing is, and and, I, and while I I, I I I'm not challenging that, I I, I think there's, I, I I I want to challenge the individualism of Locke because. I think given the way you've defined it and given the, 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 all the arguments we've made today that there's not only individual cognition, there's distributed cognition. Yes. There's also the time of civilizations and the distribute, right? Right. Mm -hmm. There's that. So there has to be a sense also in which there's not just individual property. There has to be property for the, for distributed cognition, given your definition, there has to be how the group spends its time and how it mixes its time with the world um in an important way yes. and and so i what i would want to say is the, the 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 notion of territory covers both of those possibilities because mm -hmm. think of the territory of a country that's not your and like and it's not it's not it's not atomic it's not yours plus mine it's not like we we link together all the individual properties no no there's a distributed cognition right that functions in that way and that and therefore that that the 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 time investment i'm trying to use terms that line up with yours belongs to right the country or the nation right and so yeah. territory moves between the two uh, as a term so, um and the interesting thing is so does the notion of home there's a notion of home that can be focused on you then on your family then on your neighborhood and then on your country because yes. you you definitely feel like you're going home when you're going back to Canada. You even yes. feel like you're at home if you. Well, I'm a Canadian. Sorry, I didn't mean presumptuous. When I'm abroad and I meet another Canadian, I feel like I'm at home. Not because they live in my house or they even live in my city, but because we share Canada together. Yes. That's the kind yes. of thing I'm talking about. Okay, agreed with that. That there, you know, we have to cooperate, interoperate, harmonize our actions. But there is a problem when we go from private property which is like you own you and you own the things yeah. you produce to this concept of this nebulous concept of public property because this well, starts to this let, starts let, let to let me give you an example though who mm -hmm. owns english who owns english you and i are absolutely well you can't you can't own english actually because english is non-scarce english is information so the idea that you can own an idea is itself fallacious and this goes into you know, capitalism, true capitalism says intellectual property is BS. Okay. You can only own so, scarce factors of production. So that that's interesting then, because that means then if what we've said that home is largely a cultural thing, mm -hmm. right, which is at the level of ideas and meaning and information mm -hmm. making, then it is in some sense needs to be distinct from territory. If territory is, as I think you're indicating, bound to scarcity. So then there, there's a, yes. although there's a similarity, there must be some important difference in kind between home and territory there, yes. given this argument. Yes, together. and when we confound the two, I think this yes. may be a contributor to domicile, frankly. It could be, um, it could be. This is where like, yeah. there's a great book on this. I've been doing a series with Jimmy Song, it's called Democracy, the God that Failed. But it makes the point that once, when we move from monarchy 
to democracy, the monarch had a property right in the people, basically he had a tax base. Yeah. So he had, an, yeah. he had a, a financial incentive to keep taxes low and predictable and um, not over, uh, not wage too much war, right? He wanted the, yeah, yeah. the tax base to be sustainable over time because he had a property right in the tax base. But when right, you move right. to a democratic governing model, you go from an ownership, like from the monarch having a private property right in the people, to a democratic ruler is just effectively renting the tax base. So they come uh -huh. in and they want to extract as much wealth as possible, and then they're out in four to eight years. They don't give it, they don't care, right? They have no long-term interest. So the, the, the frame problem. So while we set up democracy for the intended effect of being self-correcting, we mm -hmm. have an unintended side effect uh, right, uh, of, of turning people from inve invested uh, owners, if I'll use your metaphor, yeah. into people that are renting and trying to exploit as much as they can in a limited amount of time. Yes, I no, you, you do. And he goes through a very compelling, you know, a priori based argument that this raises time preference. So it's a de-civilizing right. force over time. Right, right, um, right. And so this is well, analogous to Plato's argument. This is analogous to Plato's argument really? against democracy. Yes. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, so that's what I'm getting. Just this idea, because if we can, it seems like there's a lot of confusion and confoundingness of like how who gets to tell who what to do. Like especially today, we're trying to yeah. figure out how to govern ourselves. There's there's an upheaval yeah. in our social structures. Yep. But this idea of property really cuts through a lot of it. It's just like you own you, I own me. If we just respect that first and foremost, and we don't transgress against one another's property, it clarifies a lot of things in the world. So that's what I was trying to get at a little bit is just see if there was a connection between domicile and, and property rights. There is, I, I think, given what you're saying. I mean, the, the original meaning of violence is to violate right the boundaries yes. of a and, mm, and we well and now one of the things we're doing right um, is we are extending the boundary of personhood uh, yeah. such that we are extending the meaning of violence. Uh, yeah. So now people are even and I, I have some philosophical concerns about this, but I understand the intent, which is, you know, your language can be violent because you oh. are, are crossing a certain boundary. Right. And, and so I'm not advocating for that and I'm not criticizing and I'm just pointing out. Yes. Right, that 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 notion of boundary of violation and uh, ownership of oneself being proper to oneself. Yes, uh, that's the, the people forget the original meaning of the word property is in in philosophy. When we talk about the properties of an object, yes. we talk about yes. the things that constitute its identity. Yeah, right. One's uh, own, I think, is what proper means. It, well, yeah, it belonging to, yes, belonging right. To, yeah. yeah. So the way the way the shape belongs to this pencil, mm -hmm. right? right. Uh, in that sense. Um, so I agree with that. What what we were exploring, but I thought we came to a good conclusion. We were exploring if that if that if the role of property in this deep ontological sense, right, the role it has in domicile told us something about the relationship between home and territory. Mm -hmm. And then what, what I think we saw was uh, the possibility, the realization that they are different uh, mm -hmm. because of the mm -hmm. relations you said to scarcity and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, interestingly, niche construction sits between then territory and home mm -hmm. as an interesting mediating place, right? right. Uh, because the organisms, that, they're sort of modifying their environment 
and yes. it's shaping them, but it's not the same thing as setting up their territory. And this uh, is transjective again, right? This is where the yes, narrative and the exactly. real world touch. Yep. Yeah. And then you said something I wanted to come back to. So I'm acknowledging your point about, you know, um, confusion about identity and property and ownership and, uh, and, and selfhood. Um, and, they, and all of these confusions are all rampant right mm -hmm. now. And they're all, in there. I, I acknowledge, I think that's a, that's a deep thing. But I also, you said something, you dropped it like a gem and I wanted to come back to it. You said they can be conflated or confused, home and territory, mm -hmm. in, in, in a profound way. And I hadn't thought about that. And I, I just wanted to, I mean, we, if you don't want to, we don't have to discuss it right now. But I thought that was a really powerful idea because you can see, you can see one of the problems uh, you could see, well, this would be historically controversial, but it would not be an intellectually disrespectful it's worthy of intellectual respect one of the problems facing the roman empire was a control of territory but that was not a home for most of the inhabitants within the empire mm -hmm. right, right. And, yes. and, and right and what one of the things christianity did was it turned the empire into a home and that's uh, yes. one of the ways in which it succeeded and the romans because the romans were confused about those two at a deep level there was a vacuum that was actually filled by christianity in an important way Okay, yes. This is the uh, Hellenistic period domicile you speak of, right? Right, right. They conquered a lot of new territory, but they hadn't put it under a canopy yet. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so that, that empire is Alexander's empire, and then it fragments into a bunch of four smaller empires, and they're yeah. always warring, and people are moving around. Yeah. And so you don't have shared language, you don't have shared religion. You don't, you, your, your, your ancestors may not have lived where you're living, yes. right? And, 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 and the political territory, the territorial boundaries are fluid and moving around. Yes. And so yes. there, there's, a, there's a terrific period in the Hellenistic period, basically from the fall of Alexander's empire to Rome, although I think it carries into Rome in the way I just indicated, mm -hmm. uh, in which there's massive domicile for the culture as a whole. And what you see is you see these powerful responses uh, to that domicide. It's, it's called an age of anxiety. Mm -hmm. You see it in art, you see it in religion, and you see it in the emergence of new types of philosophy, like mm -hmm. Stoicism, Epicureanism, mm -hmm. Gnosticism, that are where the main job of the philosophers help to heal and make people feel at home uh, yeah. in the cosmos again. The physician of the soul, right? Was exactly, yeah. exactly. Call no man a philosopher who has not alleviated the suffering of others. Epicurus. Beautiful. So then it's, again, trying to pull this back into kind of the pragmatic viewpoint. It's like there's all this newly conquered territory, but the cost of rapport and trust among its inhabitants is really high because they don't have a common canopy beneath yes. which to organize. Yes. So with that high transaction cost comes a lot of, I guess divisiveness and anxiety, right? You can't trust people, so you're very protectionist and isolated. And, and also, the one of the things you've talked about, the monopoly of violence by the state, mm -hmm. so the Roman mm -hmm. Empire, is violent. So the, the 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 empire is trying to set up the em the empire as the sacred canopy, and eventually the emperor becomes a god mm -hmm. in, that, in that attempted almost to go back to the Bronze Age where the pharaoh is mm -hmm. a god. So there's an attempt to do that, and it just it doesn't work. It doesn't take. It ultimately fails uh, precisely because 
it does you need it, it, it it's it's just not well constructed it doesn't give yeah. the mythos that was needed to pull the empire together it's interesting because i wonder too you know this is something peterson has argued that private property rights are rooted in judeo-christian mythology in a way so it's kind of perhaps an extension of that canopy if you will um and it, it, it could be i mean so i mean i mean Given the way you've talked about it, though, I would expect that there should be a universal aspect to property uh, that would not be specific to the Judeo-Christian heritage. Uh, so presumably there's property, even, you, I know you make a good distinction, which I value, between property and possession. But yeah. you can see even private possessions in other cultures, India, China, ancient Egypt. So yeah. what do you mean? Well, other than the universal aspect, what do you mean specifically? Well, as I and property again, it's kind of a nebulous term because there's many different forms of property throughout history. Yeah, yeah, it's like the freehold property or this or that. But what I specifically mean is our modern conception of private property, where you fully own yourself. You are a completely sovereign individual. And yeah, I, I yeah. may be paraphrasing Peterson's argument here, but in general, he was saying that one of the core principles of Christ was that he taught us. The sovereignty of the individual like it's higher than the state right and so that is a principle to which the state is beholden which became expressed in private property rights which you know we still have today and it's like habeas corpus innocent until yeah. proven guilty you know all of these things are a it's a principle under which western civilization is organized so it's not yes. saying the state's the highest power, it's saying individual sovereignty and liberty is the highest power. And that's what this whole thing is structured around. Actually, it doesn't, you have to be careful. Okay. Quite so a bit of pushback on my colleague and friend. Please, um, and, and I, I may be distorting this too, so I don't want to holding out think, like I'm quoting him. I, I, think it's I think it's a plausible interpretation. And if I get a chance, I'll ask Jordan. Okay. Because the idea, is, the idea and Jordan's right, and, and, and you can see this in the work of, um, oh, what's his name? The guy who wrote Dominion, Tom Holland, right? You can see the idea, you know, Christianity is the religion that, um, you know, ends infanticide, killing Yes, offenses. yes. And slavery right. to a lot, like. Well, to some well, degree. It, it, I mean, it take, I'm not saying it's immediate, but it, the principles yeah. of it. Even even the rebellion against slavery in the U.S. was kind of had a Christian rooting, right? Totally. The, yep. the, I, I I totally agree. The evangelical movement. It's funny. The evangelicals were once the left wingers, right? Um, yep. in, in American scene. Uh, the the North is dominated by the evangelical movement that's uh, pushing for the abolition of slavery. Yep. Wilberforce, who gets it uh, removed from the British Empire, is motivated by Christianity. Uh, and of course, you know, there's Gandhi and Martin Luther King, deeply, deeply, both deeply influenced yep. by, by Jesus. I, I, I'm acknowledging all mm -hmm. of that. And so the value of like the, of the individual human soul to God, which right, um, and, 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 and the idea that it's not it's not the state that makes us persons. It's agape that makes us persons. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. Right. But the thing to remember, then, is that that is ultimately a triangular relation it's my individual soul your individual soul and how we make each other into persons mm -hmm. and how we together are the body of christ so so the what's ultimate is is the agape and the agape is both remember god is agape agape yes. is both between us and also something that we together relate to so yes. while i agree with that but christianity also also kept trying to say 
You have to counterbalance that with your, and, and I think you exemplify this, right? Right. The danger with the sovereignty of the individual is egocentrism, uh, is narcissism, right? Mm. Because you can conflate, you can con- think about what, think about this is good. I like, sorry, I'm just having an insight. Mm-hmm. Think about narcissism. The narcissist goes from thinking that, right, they have a sovereignty to thinking they have a territory of everybody's attention upon them. Mm. See the difference? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See the difference? Mm-hmm. So instead of being at home in themselves and how they are attending and being attended, how they respect, remember respect means to look at, how mm-hmm. they respect and how they are respected, they then turn it from a home, right? And think about how a home again is this, mm-hmm. can be the shared project, agape, mm-hmm. and the Christian, right. the original churches were homes, right? Yes. And how that the narcissist turns it into territory, uh, right? When, when, and, and that would be defined when the narcissist, the territory would be someone that's now a conquerer, right? He's trying to actually transgress yes, yes. On, the, on the property of others. Yes. Turn home into territory. Right. Exactly. So it, 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 exactly. That's exactly it. Right. And so you can see a, a, one way of understanding. I hadn't thought about this. This is fun. One way of thinking about the narcissist is the narcissist is somebody who's hungry to be at home, but mistakes that by constantly trying to conquer territory that relates always and solely uh, to them. Yeah, this this reminds me of the um, the Marley quote that the world will know peace when the power of love overcomes the love of power. Yes, exactly. Kind of thing, right? The narcissist yes. mistakes power for love, his hunger for love or agape, perhaps he tries to replace with power and conquering yeah and so and and to be fair to jordan he was bringing that up in my most recent conversation with him but a long-standing criticism i've had of him is i've heard him talk a lot about you know the sovereignty aspect of christianity that you rightly put but not enough about the agapic aspect yes so let me tie this back into one thing because i'm this is very interesting even if there is that narcissistic impulse, then like we have, we've maximized the sovereignty of the individual, but it goes too far. And all of a sudden he wants to yeah. project back into his home as a territory, he wants to conquer some of his home and make it a territory, which is like imposing his willpower on the property of others, right? The self-ownership of others. If that option is removed, because again, something like Bitcoin, it's an inviolable property, right? Presumably you yeah. can't, that option's not there from a very practical standpoint. So does this then preserve the, uh, because again, civilization, if you have inviolable property, this is a principle that we've been talking about for hundreds of years, you know, from the Magna Carta, possibly even before that, that government really was there to preserve life, liberty, property. If property is inviolable, civilization is immortal, we might say. Um, That's good. Again, we we have inviolable, inviolable property, finally. So we're would protect us from the narcissism, potential narcissism of a sovereign individual. It could. I mean, I, 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 I mean, this is uh, another instance of uh, the, uh, of the uh, an argument you keep making, and I don't mean repetitively. You're developing it. Yes. Um, that I, I, I really like the idea of, you know, um, by managing this particular hybrid psycho material uh, technology we can afford fundamental changes in the functionality of distributed cognition. I would say it would afford the ability to reduce it. I mean, because I don't, I mean, because there's also, 
there's clearly psychodynamic and idiosyncratic, you know, trauma and other reasons why people are narcissists. Yes. So while you may thwart them in trying to impose their narcissism, I don't think you're going to remove narcissism uh, from the world, for example. So that's why I tried to answer your proposal. Yeah, agreed. But, uh, presumably over time, it would be naturally selected against though, right? If narcissism it, is just not an effective strategy, it would kind of go away over time. It could be. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, the narcissist, it depends. And this is where the, you said the nebulousness of property comes in mm. because, you know, we also pay attention and there's a reason why we use that verb. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, uh, you know, if you're, if the proposal you're making, again, I'm ignorant. I'm ignorant of the big, the, 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 how Bitcoin works. I'm ignorant about your, you know, a lot of the economics that you know, that I don't know. So if I'm answering out of ignorance, I apologize. No, no, but it no. Seems, I, I'm concerned, you know, the, the concern I'm expressing is that even if we get what you might call the financial system, right, resistant to narcissism, mm -hmm. the attentional sphere and the cultural sphere are still going to be a, 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 an open playground for the narcissist mm, in many ways. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Um, okay, I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but I just... And, and here's the other case I would just look at later is if there is a connection between domicile and property right violation, I would like to see, you know, through that lens, historically look at the prevalence of domicile and yep. central bank currency manipulation. Because again, when a central bank's printing money, they're violating everyone's property rights. That's all they're doing. There's nothing else there. I, whatever propaganda they put out, there's literally nothing. And you, this is a priori. I'm not, it's not my opinion. This is like, again, if money is just a claim on savings or a call option on all the stuff, let's say, if there's one group that can print more call options on the stuff, they're stealing from everyone else. You can't, it's two plus two equals four, right? It's very fundamental. Um, so I would just think about teasing out that connection more. It's like, okay, the more rapidly okay. we violated property rights via central banking, did that contribute to an escalation in domicile? I'm not saying it's the only way to do it, but maybe the modern, because again, those like, and we can get into zombies, the zombie myth thing, go look at those charts in your book. All the, ex the explosion of the word zombie starts after 1971, when we go off the gold standard, there's this yeah, huge you made that point. It's a good yeah. point, Robert. Yeah. It's a good point. Um, I, you saw my facial reaction. I wasn't. I was. I wasn't sort of denying. I mean, uh, that. What I was thinking is, oh, I wonder if that argument you just made aligns with the other argument you made on behalf of certain historians that you can see, a, you know, a decline in morality and a meaning crisis as you adulterate the currency, right? Yes. And, and yeah. that there might. So what I was thinking of, maybe, maybe there's a connection there. And answering your question would require sort of carefully connecting those and then trying to see how that look for the relevant historical evidence uh, for for your proposal for your thesis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, Austrians would just argue it's all time preference at the end of the day, like the yeah. more you raise the time preference, morality declines, civilization unwinds. And, 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 the, and, and there's overwhelming evidence for that. Yeah. Um, but I did want to ask you something about that. Uh, because this is a this is a there's this is a tension within this the um, the self control literature the self regulation literature mm -hmm. um, and there's two sides to it um, 
So remember we talked about this. We talked about right when you and mindfulness. So mindfulness, play, flow, they move you into the present moment in a profound way. Yes. Right. Now that's different from the person who's experiencing hyperbolic discounting and is impulsively eating the chocolate cake because yes. they're not yes. managing their time preference. Yes. So there's one, what I'm trying to say is there's two different ways of being in the present moment. One is deleterious and, and you're right. The evidence, for, this, this is cross species. This is not just human beings. Yes. The yes. evidence for hyperbolic discounting, overwhelming, and I'm acknowledging it, but right. I'm also, I'm also like, I want to, well, I'm asking you, maybe we work out. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's another sense mm -hmm. of being in the present moment. That's powerful. That's important for play right for development for coming into the being mode for yes. all of these things and you know so again how do we properly i don't know i'm asking this question for yeah, us uh, coordinate between the two of them right it's a great it's a great question and just instinctually what comes to mind is it's maybe it's a perspectival knowing thing it's like when we're yeah. looking at the future the yeah. lower our time preference, the further we're looking, right? Like they said, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, the Native Americans used to make decisions seven generations out, right? Whereas yes, yeah, today in corporate yeah. America, it's quarterly results, right? Yeah. So that's a shrinking that, of yeah. time preference when yeah. we're looking at the future. But there's this other, oh, sorry, hit my own mic. Yeah, yeah. This other form of perspectival knowing where like just to be present is to be in touch with reality in the moment right of all yeah so maybe it's two different ontological yeah. modes or something it is, i think because i'm when the second one i'm thinking of jesus of nazareth saying take no thought for the morrow right mm -hmm. and, and right right and, and consider the lilies of the valley and solomon and all of his finery was not yes. as well closed as that right and so there's something there too and i don't want to turn that into a hallmark card there's a deep, profound no, thing no, no. about. No, it's, it's interesting that it's paradoxical in a way too, because it's like yeah, all yeah. the timeless principles we've talked about, like justice and yeah. love, like they can only be here and now. So you yeah, can only yeah. have it, but yeah. to get there, you almost have to have, yes. when you're looking forward, it has to be very far forward in a way. So there's a, a paradox. I maybe. suspect, by the way, Robert, I suspect that this is a dimension of opponent processing and relevance realization that I did not properly try to articulate in my theory. I think there's a point of processing between these two modes mm. and that we're constantly moving between them. And as we move between them, that alters our salience landscape. We know it does mm -hmm. and what I find relevant. So in addition to, you know, the generalization versus the specialization and, and, and the, uh, the, the, temp, uh, the temporal binding versus the inhibition on return, right? I think there's this other opponent processing between these two modes in yes. some important way. Yeah, no, I agree. I have the same sense. Um, I, I want to try because we, uh, we're we always pressed for time here. Uh, I want to just talk real quick because I don't know that we rooted domicide well. So I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts about the case from the grassy narrows. Can I say one thing? Because it's, yes, it's in the notes, and, and, and I, I, but I want people to be clear. First of all, this is based on Brian Walsh, and I think the argument still runs, but people also need to know that there is the real factor, and it's ongoing, this is part of Canadian politics, mm -hmm. of the mercury poisoning, which mm -hmm. we ignore the book, right? Yeah. So 
right? So, so there's a confound in there, speaking as a scientist. However, one thing you can say on behalf of Brian Walsh's analysis, of, even as there is the mercury poisoning, the, the cultures adapt, can't respond to it. And, and that's, right. the, that's right. another aspect of the domicile. Well, I'd, actually, wanna... I'd like to tie that piece in, actually. So yes. I'll read a couple of excerpts and then I'll add one piece of commentary. You said this, and this is in regard to the case of the Grassy Narrows Nation. You said, quote, the site of some of the most severe social and famil familial disintegration right. together with environmental despoilation ever to be seen in North America. Cases right. of domestic conflict, violence and suicide exploded in number, employment plummeted, welfare dependency increased as many as dependency increased as many as 1000 people showed symptoms of being infected with Minamata disease caused by mercury dumping upstream. Yeah. Yeah. The connection I would like to make there, by the way, is mercury dumping upstream is a violation of property rights. Yes. Had yes. that upstream been privatized, it is much less likely it would have been polluted into because this is one of the things property rights do is if I own something, I have a capital interest in protecting it. So if that yep. had been a private property right and you dumped in my stream, I would have sued you and stopped you from doing it. So yep. uh, just tying that piece back in and maybe you could just speak briefly to the, what this case of the Grassy Narrows Nation was and how it relates to domicide. So um, the, the idea of, about the property, I take that well said. Um, that there was no legal recourse. I want that understood that that's also mixed up with um, the, the, and it's come to light, the horrible at times genocidal policy of the Canadian government to the Indigenous people. I mean, right. and, and that's why they had no legal recourse. Um, um, so uh, I just want, I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, yes, so that would have made a diff, I think that would have made a difference, but Part of what Brian Walsh is arguing is that there was another factor, which was the replacing of, uh, of the one style of housing with another that disrupted all of the cultural project. So not only were these people exposed to an environmental threat for the legal and uh, economic reasons we've just discussed, they their culture was at the same time slammed mm -hmm. so that they didn't have uh, the cultural resources to try and respond. Uh, we basically committed domicide on these people. So what we do is we throw them into a, a, a serious environmental threat and then the, the, the domicide because the way the houses had been set up in the indigenous culture reflected their understanding of their sovereignty, mm -hmm. but also the unity, uh, the way the, the, the mythos and the symbols and the enacted yes. rituals. And this was replaced with a Western idea of what's an efficient way to put right. up housing and have had transfer. And so we we had all this, you know, you know, efficiency ideas in terms of the housing, and we destroyed in in a kind of obtuse manner, right? The homing. And so these people are simultaneously having their cognition sort of hammered by the mercury, and then we're taking out any of the cultural resources. The, the right. distributed cognition that would allow them to deal, try to process, bring some meaning, and also maybe some agency and responsiveness, yeah. right, to this. So, like, that's what we're trying to point to that was going on there. So it was, there is this issue, and then there's this terrific, at the same time, domicide. And so 
those people were like they're, they and I, I don't mean I I mean this with utmost compassion, not any sense of cruelty. Those people were doomed. Yeah, like like they're yeah. doomed. It's it's like me coming in and taking away all your nut- nutritious food mm-hmm. and replacing it with really really shitty food mm-hmm. that's going to make you feel bad, and then yeah. removing all of the things that turn your dwelling into a home, making mm-hmm. it completely austere and barren, and so you feel you don't feel at home. And so you're feeling really shitty and on top of it, you don't feel at home. Notice how when you feel sick, where do you want to go? When you feel sick, right. where do you want to go? Home and in bed. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you take that away from somebody. Yeah. No, it's an excellent point. And then, you know, to your earlier point that home is extended mind in a way, right? Yeah. So it's like yeah. their, their mind was being attacked by mercury, which was a right. violation of property rights arising yeah. from that. And then they were being pulled, physically removed from their home where they had spaciousness and familiarity and all these things and plucked it down somewhere else. So it's this double whammy of property right violations just destroyed their mind effectively. Yes. 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 Very Um, much so. Very much. And it's analogous to what happened with the Hellenistic domicile. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, And and so the argument we make in the book, Philip and Chris and I is the, is that here's a way of thinking about the meaning crisis. Meaning crisis is a domicile that you can't move from. Right. Well, yeah, that's scary. Um, yeah. I, I want to, maybe this is the right place then. So, because I wanted to ask you about the connection between domicile and the logos. Yes. yes. And one of the, uh, again, quotes from the book here, this is a reference to Viktor Frankl. Yes. Uh, very famous author, Man's Search for Meaning, survivor of Nazi internment camp. Yep. Um, and, and in the book, you write, his method of logotherapy, which I'll let you speak to what that is, gives a prescription for self-affirmation when one is, quote, in a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way. And this, you said, was hearkening back to the Stoics' response of the philosopher slash physician to the Hellenistic domicide. Exactly, exactly. So the Stoics, I mean, it's already in Plato and the Platonic tradition, but the Stoics really valorized the Logos as a, not just a principle of human understanding, but as an ontological principle about how the universe Mm -hmm. is organized. And, and, and then they coupled that with the idea, and this is what Frankl is picking up on on logo, logotherapy is bringing the logos to a situation of trauma and suffering is a way in which you can home it. Uh, so let, mm-hmm. let, me, let me try and do this a little step by step. Mm-hmm. So the Stoics are preceded by the cynics. And we've, again, we've, de- we've degraded this word and we've lost the original meaning of right. the word. Now we use cynic to mean somebody with a secret agenda. That's not the original meaning. Mm-hmm. This, the cynics are responding to Hellenistic domicide with this idea. What's caught, like, like they're, a doc, they're a doctor. Here's the diagnosis. Your distress is being caused by you are setting your, you're setting your heart upon the wrong things. Mm-hmm. You're setting your heart upon man-made conventions and institutions and they will ultimately let you down right they will also ultimately disappoint you so you should set your heart on the two things that are eternal natural law and moral law mm. that's cynicism and that's mm. why diogenes leaves athens and goes out and lives in a barrel 
And that's why when Alexander comes, so here's Alexander, the king of the world, right? He yeah. comes to Diogenes and says, I can give you whatever you want. What do you want? And Alexander is a master of his own self-myth, right? Yeah. And Diogenes said, can you move a little to the left? Because you're blocking the sunlight. Right? Talk <laughs> about individual sovereignty. Talk yeah. about, right. right? Okay. Yeah. Right. So, and what, what the Stoics said is they said the cynics, because, and there's a direct line of teaching. The Stoics said, the cynics are on the right track. But they they're they're they but they're concentrating too much on the what instead of the how. Mm. It's not what you set your heart on; it's how you set your heart on anything. Mm. Hmm. And so, what the Stoics are about is right. And so, Epictetus, right? Pay attention to what's in your control, what's not in your control, and what does that yeah. mean? It means what we often try to do is control the world to deal with our trauma, and trying to move the world is really hard. And we don't try, we don't even pay attention to the meaning, the framing. Yes. And a lot of the times we're suffering because of the meaning. It doesn't mean there isn't physical suffering. They never said that. But a lot of the times our psychological suffering, our existential suffering is due to the meaning of the thing rather than the thing itself. Right. So it's not, it's not what you're setting your heart on, but how you're setting your heart. Right. And so understanding that allows you to bring the logos, the principle of intelligibility of meaning making to bear. So what you're doing, right? And you can see this. Here, here's, you, you have a daughter, right? Uh, so yeah. you've gone through this yeah. too. Okay. So you talk to people about their subjective well-being, which is how are, how do you feel? How are you doing? How's your life going? Right. And, you know, and, and people value that and, and, and as they should. You know one thing that really destroys your subjective well-being? Having a child. <laughs> your sleep goes down, your diet goes down, your relationship with your partner goes down, you're under constant <laughs> stress, there's uncertainty. Yeah. Your subjective yeah. well-being crashes. Why but do people somehow do not? <laughs> well, 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 you don't die, but it, it goes yeah. down. But you know what goes up? Meaning in life. Mm-hmm. Mm Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white-label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single-source solution for everything Bitcoin. Which tells you those, and this is one of the things, I think, of the fundamental confusions of our culture. We think those two are identical. Mm. They correlate, but they can go apart like this. Right. You have a kid, and that's agape again, because yeah. that's where you're most experiencing agape. Now, here's the thing. And this is part of the meaning crisis. 
people can, this is Frankel's insight, people can endure tremendous, tremendous distress if they can find a meaning in it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He who has a why can bear any how, right? Yes, Nietzsche. Yeah. And Nietzsche got that, and he got that that's the key to the response to nihilism. You have to, you have to, I put it this way, you have to, the response to nihilism is no philosophical proposition. It's being able to fall in love with the world again. Yeah. Right. And so being able to bring a meaning onto something. Now, if you're in domicide, you know, and you'll like this language, I think, you know what you have a scarcity of? Meaning. And so you are in scarcity mentality, which means, as you said, you lose cognitive flexibility. You you you're, you're, sub- you're subject to hyperbolic discounting. This yeah. is scarcity mentality is now being well established within psychology. We are in a scarcity mentality about meaning, so we cannot use right meaning yes. to try to deal with our distress. And so we've got a vicious circle. Yes. We're suffering distress because we're feeling domicile, and because we're in domicile, we don't have the meaning to bring to bear. And there we go. I'm so deep and interesting, um, profound and mind blowing in a lot of ways. Um, I, I want to just, again, this is all hypothesis, but I love thinking out loud with you. So here goes. Um, yeah. I've, I think I've related to you previously that we know words are an expression of the logos, right? Yes, yes. Again, the original meaning of the word, word or ratio. Um, I've argued in much of my writing that prices, so words are this coordinating element of of our existence. Yep. Prices yep. too yep. are yep. a and it's an exchange ratio. So it's rooted in ratio, which I argue is an expression of the logos, right? It's human action. It's a representation of human action effectively that coordinates. That's what coordinates the economy or prices. Yep. Um, and you're saying that domicide is a scarcity of meaning. Nietzsche is saying the antidote to, uh, I guess, domicide or meaninglessness is this, I'm sorry, to fall in love with the world again is like an antidote to this. Well, that's um, my proposal. His proposal was the will to power, which is a different thing, but. Right, right, okay, fair enough, fair enough. So I just, this, the idea that, again, central banks printing money, violating private property rights, distorting prices by the way yeah. and this is the real measurable pain point that central banks create they create a misallocation of capital because they distort this communication apparatus we call prices all of a sudden you don't know if a price you observe in the marketplace is supply and demand or policy right they're picking winners and losers Yes, yes. And this is maybe a segue to our next topic is the myth of zombies. That's what creates zombie companies. A zombie company is by definition an enterprise which is producing losses. In a capitalistic environment, it would be bankrupt. Its capital would be reallocated to higher and better aims. But because there's a central bank behind it, stealing from the productive economy and allocating the stolen proceeds into that entity, these loss producing enterprises can persist over time. That's what a zombie company is. So it actually has that name, a zombie company, they, right? Complete, like Google, it's everywhere. And we're and right. we're riddled with them. We're increasingly riddled with them. The more money we print, the more misallocation of capital there is, the more zombie companies we have. Can I so, ask you that? Yes. Like, 
I take you to be a trustworthy source. Like, has pe have people done like a, a, like a historical empirical investigation of that correlation that as you come into fiat currency, the number of zombie companies expands or grows? Like, is there a direct correlation? Um, uh, I will, I would have, not off the top of my head, I, I don't know per se, but I will say this, like in following the markets for 10 years, I can observe, there's two things that happen. So when your money loses value over time, two things are happening. People become more prone to gambling, right? You're going to do anything yeah. you can to outpace yeah. inflation. Yeah. You just yeah, want yeah. your dollar to be worth the same in purchasing power tomorrow as it is today. Yeah. But the faster its value is diminished, the further out on the risk curve you're, you're pushed. Yeah, so you'll yeah. see more and more unicorn companies, more and more um, high-risk ventures, essentially, as people right. are trying to outpace right. inflation. And the flip side of that is the more wealth is being confiscated by the government through inflation, and then they're picking winners and losers, right? They're just allocating right. this capital. Oh, this bond fund, this, this is really yeah, prevalent yeah. in China. Japan has been a zombie economy for 20 years now because their central yeah, bank was I've so overly that. active. Yeah. So that's kind of the two sides of the equation. I would have to get back to you on the empirical study, but it's, I don't think it's super, um, debate debated you know it's like i don't yeah, even think yeah. people that are pro central banking can argue um that zombie companies are bad but they think that the and, benefits and of printing outweigh the i was specific i i'm not disputing their um uh, the, the normative judgment that they're sort of ultimately long-term bad what, yeah. I, what i'm what i'm wondering is the the, the specific empirical claim that they're because uh, uh, two questions mm -hmm. like your claim that they're increasing and I'm wondering, is the rate also increasing? The rate of the the existence of zombie companies? I would have That's to get back to you on that, but my sense of it, just off the top of my head, and having yeah. you know looked, followed markets for ten years, is that the answer is yes. I mean, yeah. um, and you could see, and it's not black or white, right? It's not like zombie company, non-zombie company. Um, for instance, when we were, were printing. One of the things printing money does is it lets larger companies borrow money more cheaply to buy back their own shares. Yes. Okay. Yes, so yes. they're getting privileged access to the stolen proceeds of inflation. And this, yes. this drives centralization. Basically, the bigger you are, the cheaper you can borrow money, the bigger you can become. And this dispossesses right. all small companies. Right, because the, right. the costs of regulation are increasing, inflation are increasing. So this is actually creating disparity uh, in wealth, not only at the individual level, but also in, in the corporate level um, and the wow. geopolitical level, frankly. This lets the United States, we export inflation by printing the dollar. So we export the cost of inflation onto the world. We have what is called the, this is called the exorbitant privilege of being the global reserve currency. So right, we get right. to send people, send other nations printed dollars that we can produce ad infinitum, they send us goods and services. So yeah. you can imagine how much of a privilege this really is. It's called the exorbitant yeah. privilege for a reason. So all that said, I just wanted to draw this, and maybe this is just a, me trying to make a good segue here, is there's an interesting <laughs> connection between domicide, violation of private property, the emergence of zombie mythology, which as we said in yeah. the beginning, the artist yep, yep. is mythologizing yep. the present for the future. Yes. Zombie companies. Yep. Um, and also, also the extension of the term zombie 
to these companies. That's an important phenomena in its own right. Yes. And then when I read your work on zombies, which we probably need to explain this, people think like, what are they talking about? Um, <laughs> let me, I'll, I'll open with just another excerpt here. So you say that if the zombie draws out our withdrawal, stands for our lack of standing for anything, and is in touch with how out of touch our worldview has become, then the zombie is the embodiment of domicide. Its yes. lack of reflection is revealed in a disturbing trend of radical disengagement, cutting across all domains of human life, deeply severing ties to ourselves, others, and an overarching social meta-narrative. We stand to lose our cognizance, communicability, community, and culture. Yes. And again, just through my lens, I keep coming back to the, I think I'm positing here that property is that attunement mechanism between agent and arena, at least in the economic domain. And when right. we've distorted that attunement, we've, this zombie mythology has emerged, you know, and it's That's all, it's in culture everywhere, but it's also, it's not just, it's not just the meta narrative, right? We're also taking that meta narrative and applying it to the real world in these companies. Rant over. <laughs> no, 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 you're not ranting. Uh, that, that was great. Um, and, and you, you know, I, I, I am intrigued. Um, I'm a scientist, I need more, but, but yeah. you're only presenting it also as a hypothesis. So, yeah. right. Um, like the point you make about look, look at the spike in the graphs and look at the date and, and, you know, that there's a correlation there. And I'm going to have to reflect on that because that's a very good observation. I want to acknowledge that right Thank away. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, now, the idea, the idea that the attunement is going out because of that, like, and again, uh, you know, the, I, I've admitted that, especially in the original, it was not enough about distributed cognition, and relatedly, there was not enough about socioeconomics in the, in the book, but even in, 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 a lot of the, in, in a lot of the series. I, you know, I've now been in the last two years really concentrating on distributed cognition. It's one mm -hmm. of the reasons why I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why right, I'm talking to you. So I, I want to acknowledge all of that. And I want to acknowledge the plausibility of the hypothesis. It should be taken seriously reflected on. Um, and you did qualify it. Because what I want to say, though, is it's clear that the zombie also re represents the inversion, the perversion of the Christian framework. It's, yes. a, it's, a, it's a denigration of the resurrection. And then we have the zombie apocalypse. We, these two things, which is a denigration of the Christian notion of apocalypse. I'm not a Christian. I'm not advocating for Christianity, yeah. but I'm trying to show that there's also a mythos, right? All that mythos yeah. stuff, the, the, the symbols, the sacred play, right? The, the ritual, all of that is also being lost. And the, it, the loss of that is being represented in the zombie as well. Yes. And now, I don't think the, 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 if you'll allow me your adjective, the economic, and I'll say the, the, the I don't think the, the socioeconomic and the cultural religious, remember that culture and cultus are deeply connected, right? Okay, yes, cultus, yes, yes. right? Yes. Right? Yeah. right? I don't think they're identical, but I want to say that I'm finding it increasingly plausible that they are affecting each other in yes. the historical development of the meaning crisis. That's what I think I could, how I could re respond to your proposal, your hypothesis. Yes, then fair enough. That's, uh, and again, not mine, 
the Austrian tradition, they talk about the yeah. connection between civilization and culture and you know the the implementation of property effectively, which you can think of money as just one of the implementations of the principle of property effectively. Yeah, yeah. And another way that maybe this will land with you a little bit. I this keeps jumping into my mind. I don't know why, but like the concept of optimal grip and property. Yeah. It's like yeah. that's how yeah. this we have this force of humanity moving around the globe. We're all trying to interoperate and coordinate in a way that from a utilitarian standpoint, I guess, satisfies the most wants for the most people. Richard, that's brilliant. Let's, let's, I just sorry for interrupting. I just want to yeah. zoom in on that and expand it because think about one of the prime sort of what maybe one of the core virtues is having an optimal grip on one's self. Yes. Because you can be too focused or you can be too not focused, right? Right. Right. You see what I'm trying to get at? Yes. That too discriminating we, or too generalizing, I think. Something, or, yeah. or, or also that I can be, yeah, like that, that's part of it. But also, I can be too close to myself and too distant from myself. Right. Like, think, think of the double meaning of the word pride. Pride is, right, there's a sense in which it's a vice. And yeah. then we have a completely other meaning, which is now, no, a sense of like, uh, the, 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 so we can think about it as, as the territorial sense yeah. and the sovereignty sense of pride, given some of the languages talked about before. And optimal grip, is, or let's talk about uh, being having a virtue, being courageous. I can be too self-protective, and that makes me a coward. Yes. I can be too negligent of myself, and then I become <laughs> a foolhardy idiot. Yes. yes. Okay. Optimal grip okay. on oneself. You yes. see? Yes. No, please continue. You just reminded me of one of my favorite quotes of all time, though. <laughs> Which is what? Uh, I have to look it up. It's a long one. Uh, okay. It's G.K. Chesterton on courage. Well, all, I, all I'm saying there is if, right, if what we're talking about is an op, if the primary property is, right, the propriety towards one's selfhood, Mm -hmm. Then the optimal grip on oneself, which is what virtue represents, there's a deep connection there. There has to be a deep connection between the optimal grip on oneself, sovereignty, property, the, the yes. these terms we're using. Ownership and, of oneself. Right. And, and, and the optimal grip on right on, on on reality that we term virtue. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Those yes. two are bound together. Yes. Those okay. Yes. 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 Okay. So, and there's a deep connection between the marketplace and virtue. So one, one way to maybe think about this is who's the boss of the CEO? Yes. The yeah. market. Yeah. The market, all the collective property rights of the marketplace is telling the CEO what to do with his business to satisfy its wants. Yeah. So there's this, maybe that's the balance is we have to have, you know, respect for our own property and care, but it, it could go too far and be um, narcissism that projects itself as as territory. But if it's checked against the inviolable property of others that are voting for what they want, right? And you can't take my property, you can only listen to my vote. That's the correct equilibrium. The proper equilibrium, we might say. Yeah, appropriate. Yeah, appropriate. Property, right yes. in the center, appropriate. So I take it, though, that you view that that's an ideal description, because I take it because you've launched many criticisms that the current system we have and the corporations we have 
are terrifically corrupted in, in a lot of ways. Uh, capitalism, I think, in its purest sense, makes a lot of sense, but central banking is a fully corrupt institution. It's a currency counterfeiting organization. But yep. I mean, no, not very, it sounds radical, but I'd say just study it and you'll find that that is in fact at the bottom. And then the, from that most government action is not proper either, right? So they're, they're spending stolen proceeds but, to do different things. Surely there's also many market players that are gaming this corrupt system also. I mean, that must Correct. also be the zombie companies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. It, it, it creates a tendency towards centralization. Um, and so, all right, let, let me read this quote from GK Chesterton. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just now like things are just occurring to me and I just want to share them because it feels right. GK Chesterton uh, made a quote on the paradox of courage. Um, we should set it up a little bit. Chesterson is a Christian, he's yes. a Christian apologist, uh, just so, so people know the background. Yes. Yes. Uh, this is a bit of a long one, but I'm going to do my best here. So take the case of courage. No quality has ever so much addled the brains and tangled the definitions of merely rational sages. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it. It is not by a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed on an Alpine guide or a drill book. This paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quite earthly or brutal courage. A man cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an, within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and he will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water, yet drink death like wine. That's brilliant. I want to do the same thing. I want to read a, a, one of my favorite quotes in response. Please. One of my closest friends gave me this beautiful card. Um, and watch what happens when you open it. There's a ship inside. <laughs> nice. Beautiful. Um, and this is from Moby Dick. Okay. But as in landlessness, alone rides the highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as, as God, so better it is to perish in that howling infinite than be ingloriously dashed upon the lee, even if that were safety. For worm-like then, oh, who would crave and crawl to land? Terrors of the terrible. Is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O Balkington, that's one of the characters. Mm. Barely grim, bear thee grimly, demigod, up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. And the, wow. he's giving the example of a ship that is in the middle of the storm. And right, if it tries to get to shore, the storm will actually destroy it. 
And instead, what it has to do is turn away from the shore, away from home, yeah. right? And let the storm power it out to sea. And he's, he's using that as a metaphor of our confrontation with the infinitude of existence and the kind of existential courage we have to summon up in wow. order to actually continue to exist. Moby Dick is one. Moby Dick is the great novel about the advent of the meaning crisis within modern, within sort of modernity, modernity's awareness. Wow. I like. If I had to have one novel, it would be Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Beautiful. Great myth. Great mythos. Yeah. Moby Dick is mythos. The artist making a mythos for us now. Moby yes. Dick is the mythos of the advent of the meeting crisis. Beautiful. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah, this power. I have not read Moby Dick, but now I'm going to order it. So thank you for that. <laughs> um Okay, so there's something, I mean, yeah, we could explore this for a long time. But, um, I want to move, maybe we'll leave it at, I'll, I'll leave it at this. And my, just the thought that I had was perhaps the zombie occurrence is a mythologization of property rights being violated via central banking and or the state. So we have zombie companies, deification of the state which was the problem in the 20th century, right? Yep, That's yep, what yes. really yep. created World War One, World War II was this yep. ideological possession, and then um, which was funded by the central bank. And then there's genocide and total war on the back of that. So there's there is that. And um, like I said, I, I also I think we make a careful argument in the book uh for the zombie as the symbol of the meaning crisis mm -hmm. you know zombies um they they can't speak but they hunger for brains the organ that makes sense of things it's intelligible yes. uh, all, they're, they're the only communal monster but they have no community they shuffle around in a mindless yes. horde like all of us do when we're walking up and down the streets in the cities especially the canadian cities in winter um <laughs> but um you know, and, and, and the zombie can't be satisfied. Um, the zombie is fully bound. If you want to point to the, the creature who has the most hyperbolic discounting, right? The mo zombie, most, most yeah. time preference, the yes. zombie, right? And the, 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 the zombie is not supernatural. Right. Uh, or generally, it, there's, and, and, and in, you know, in The Walking Dead, they, make very, they say this more than once in the series. We are the walking dead. Yes. The human beings are the one. The zombies right. come from us degraded, and we are just them already, but we haven't fully realized it. Yes. Right? And like I said, and then you get the perversion of the Christian. The, the zombies are resurrected, but not to the life, right? Not to the abundant life, but from to the absolutely decadent life because they are perpetually decaying. Yes. There's the apocalypse is supposed to reveal the new world that redeems this one, but the zombie apocalypse is just the endless growth of the decadence. Yes. And, 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 and the zombie is, you know, Deleuze said it right. It's, you know, the, it's, it, it's the, it's, it's the only modern myth. It is the way in which the culture has been portraying the meaning crisis to itself. Yes. Now, like yes. I said, I, I want to acknowledge your socioeconomic point and I, mm. it was not in my work. And that's, oh, I, that's just a lacuna. But like I said, I think the religio-cultural history and the philosophical history have also contributed greatly to the advent Agreed. of the crisis. Yes. I think the loss of the wisdom institutions, the loss of the monastery has also yes. contributed to the crisis. All of these things 
Um, and so it's, it, I find it so, <laughs> it's almost, so I'm really worried of the arrogance of my own theory here, but it, of course they're going to call these companies zombie companies. Mm -hmm. Of course they are. Mm -hmm. Of course they are. Then think about it. They have all of they have all of mythology to draw from to yes. label these countries, right? They could be changeling co corporations yes. or companies, or they could be you know vampire companies because yes. they're just sucking up. No, they're zombie. Like yes. there's a reason why that well, the, was yes, yes, they are walking dead. They continue yes. to exist, but they're bleeding capital, right? They're losing money, but they're sustained yes. by theft. So it's by by eating brains, I guess, right? <laughs> Eating the white flowers. Um, I, I know. So what's, what's what's interesting is how all of these things are constellating together. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes. Uh, very, very powerfully. No, I agree, and that's why I'm very. You know, that's where your work really captivated me initially. I want to read maybe one last quote about this, and then if you think it's a good time, we could transition to hopefully a more hopeful topic. Um, yeah. He said, quote, it seems plausible that our elevated identification with these modalities is also symptomatic of our cultural domicide. We're talking about zombies being uh, reflective of domicide. It is a victual substitute for religious involvement, satiating our appetites for community and social coherence. In the absence of our sacred canopy, these partial modes of identification are overdrawn to meet the elements. They are exapted as pseudo-religious domiciles, shelters of culture to huddle within as we fend off encroachment by the zombies, elements of strangeness in the post-war world. So the, I don't know, the sense that I get is that we've almost been experimenting when we come out from under the canopy of religion, we've experimented with other canopies like the yes. state or what, and, it's, ideologies. and, and we've, we've, we haven't, you know, we left something very important behind in that transition. And the state as a pseudo-religious domicile was inadequate. And that's what the yes. 20th century showed. And, and, and on both sides, the left and the right. Yes. On both sides. Both the, the state. Both. Yes, exactly. Yes. 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 So, yes, that's very much. Um, and, and, and we're seeing, we're seeing, I mean, there's one way. Um, I wouldn't say it's the only way. I'm not making an argument for exclusivity, but you can see what's happening in the United States as a, you know, pseudo-religious civil war between, you know, maybe wokeism on the left and the, and the Trump cult on the right. And they're both right. authoritarian and they're both right in, in certain ways. And I'm going to piss off a lot of people saying that. I know there's other issues. I'm not denying yes. that. I know there's other policy issues. I know there's other things going on, but I'm saying one of the dimensions is... A, properly understood as a pseudo-religious dimension that helps to explain the deep faith, allegiance, identification with these particular ideological stances. There yes. is, we need an explanation beyond the practicality of certain policy commitments to explain this, this profound commitment that is ripping the country apart and yes. putting it on the verge of a civil war, right? Yes. Um, yes. And, and yes. so I, I'm not... Again, I am not excluding the political points, the policy points, or the economic issues, but I'm saying there's a religious dimension to this phenomena that also needs to be properly acknowledged. That's why you yes. see all this religious behavior uh, on both sides yes. around yes. their ideological commitments. Absolutely. 
very well said. Um, and I think that the, this is not the first time this has happened, maybe not in this way or to this extent, but pre axial revolution, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, was the age of anxiety. Was that right? No, the uh, the age of anxiety, the Hellenistic period comes after the actual oh, revolution. Oh, apologies. So, okay. Yeah. Maybe we could speak to that then. The how did we resolve the age of anxiety previously? Uh, and then we, I guess. So we, we resolved the age of anxiety um, by um, the the emergence of the uh, the philosopher as a physician of the soul by mm -hmm. discovering the this dimension to wisdom that was only implicit in the Socratic Platonic tradition mm. and then and then developing that out in the way like like things that are very analogous to logotherapy but you have to remember that then what happens is you know stoicism the platonic tradition the aristotelian tradition right get integrated it's like the grand unifying field theory of, mm. of human religiosity into neoplatonism mm. and then neoplatonism gets integrated with all of the profound myth mythos of like uh, of you know uh, uh, of christianity yeah and you get you get the grand synthesis of people like augustine and that is the creation of a new sacred canopy wow. that housed no wrong word i apologize that homed people again like i said mm -hmm. within the roman empire in a way that was distinct from right the, the political structures of the state wow so it was the pulling all of these meaning systems into a, a grand unification a meta meaning system yeah, a meta -meaning. and that's Geertz's definition of religion a religion is a meta meaning wow. system that homes and makes possible by driving worldview to it, it makes all the other meaning systems possible. It makes the legal meaning system possible, the economic right. system possible, the moral meaning system, it makes all of them possible. Religio, religio. Yes, 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 yes. Which maybe that is the mechanism for connecting property to, to Christ, right? It's like it's nested within this larger could meaning be. system. Yeah. Could be, it could be. I mean, like we said, I think, you know, uh, back, uh, you can see Christianity is giving people an optimal grip on the self between the sovereignty of the self and yes. the participation of the self. I was just talking about this in another thing today. One of my favorite theologians, great one of the great theologians, he even called himself the theologian of culture, is Paul Tillich, one of the great. Yeah. Uh, the Courage to Be is one of the great books. Um, and Tillich talked about Christianity as trying to get this, always respecting, not trying to resolve, but always trying to preserve the, 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 the tonos, the creative tension between individuation and participation mm. and therefore getting an optimal grip on self and community and that and it's constantly keeping them in opponent processing like like i was suggesting to you earlier each one is sort of correcting the other right individuation and tonation no individuation and participation uh participation okay interesting so just writing that down um okay so that's it so and then philosophy then was the antidote to the age of anxiety ancient philosophy as pierre hodot talks about in what is ancient philosophy philosophy as philia yes the the joint the fellowship love of wisdom yes very much that yeah. was the solution so where does that where does the line then go from because you're saying philosophy is uh 
I guess, coalescing all these meaning systems in one thing that then becomes a religion? Is that? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting the way Christianity, oh boy, this is like, this is such a complex, but it's interesting the way in which, and, and, and I'm, I'm being a little bit oversimplistic, but I have to just for purposes of this. It's, it, the, the mythos of Christianity seeks out the logos, the logos of, the logos of Neoplatonism, mm. and they come together and they, they find a way of mutually supporting each other. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a great anthology I recommend to you called Christian Platonism. Some of the best scholars, and we're just and uh, Paul Tyler's book, uh, <coughs> returning uh, returning to reality, uh, he where he makes a case for Christian Neoplatonism, yes, uh, or just Christian Platonism as a, a response to the meaning crisis, <coughs> because he's right. The, the, the Christian Neoplatonism, uh, you know, was was engineered to deal with a profound meaning crisis. So yeah, you can see the mythos of Christianity and the logos uh, 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 of Neoplatonism coming together and they, they re, uh, and they, and they cross pollinate and they constrain and they challenge each other. Interesting. So there's the bronze age collapse. It's the greatest collapse in civilization that the world has ever seen. Yeah. Um, so there's no controversy about that. There's tons of controversy about what caused it. Maybe it's a change in, in you know, in, te- in technology, chariot warfare mm-hmm. is made obsolete very suddenly. Yep. It could be general systems collapse. It could be both. So, but nevertheless, massive collapse of civilization. And what it's, it, and there's an analogy. I'm trying to remember who made it. Maybe it was true. I'm not sure, but it's, they compare it to like the, the, in, in the bronze age world, you have these huge empires the Babylonian Empire and the Hittite Empire and the Egyptian Empire, and they compare them to like dinosaurs, and they've mm-hmm. dominated, right? They've dominated the world for so long, and then the the Bronze Age collapses, like when the asteroid hit, and all the dinosaurs right. go. Yes. And then there's all these little mammalian kingdoms that are springing up, and so there's tremendous amount of experimentation, but also warfare and mm-hmm. distress, and, and right, and then what's born out of that? And we've talked about this, so I'll just re- remind people. We talked about for very prosaic reason, you get the creation of these psychotechnologies, mm-hmm. right? And then they they get internalized into cognition. They create second order thinking that mm-hmm. totally alters how people. It totally alters the agent arena relationship. How people, how they identify or understand themselves, how they understand the world, and you yes. get the axial view, the axial view in which wisdom is not about belonging to the continual patterns of the cosmos. But wisdom is about transcending out of the world that is fallen or illusory because of the self-deceptive nature of our minds. This mm-hmm. is the great discovery of the actual revolution. And somehow wisdom is now about transcending to a, a better world, a more real world. Mm. Now, the thing about that is, and, and so, and now, and, and that is, and, and, and it doesn't have to be this way, right? It can also metaphorically be this way. So, you can also see the better world as a future world that you're going to work towards. And you get the Hebrew notion of the, the exodus out of the Bronze Age empire, Egypt, yes. towards an, a promised land where we are in right relationship with God, who's on all, you know, the ground of ultimate reality and, and that sort of thing. And that mm-hmm. whole notion gets then embedded. Notice how many of our pseudo-religious ideologies, including the ones ripping us apart right now, mm-hmm. are utopian in nature. Of course. Are yeah. utopian in nature. 
And I'm very, very, very wary of any position that is, is utopian for, yes. for just that reason. It's a pseudo, it's a, that's, a, that's a pretty good um, criterion for something being a pseudo-religious ideology. Right. And, you, and both right. Nazism and communism are, are, are utopic visions, yes. comprehensive yeah. utopic visions. Yeah. So yeah. the thing is, right, that, and, and as I just indicated, that, that grammar, that cultural cognitive grammar of thinking of it as two worlds, first of all, you know, it, it, that's, it's a mythos and it's functional, but the mythos gets reified. It gets, it, it's like you said, like, the, you know, the frame that you, then you, you first, it's so useful, and, but then yes. you can't take yes. your glasses off. And we can only think of the two worlds, the world above and the world below, or the world, the utopia in the future and the world now. And, and, and the problem with that is that two worlds mythology does not sit within the scientific worldview. The scientific worldview has been exactly the opposite. It has been a worldview that has been flat. There is one world. There is one, think of the word, yes. universe there, right? Yes, right? one song. And, and yeah. so, yeah. And so what happens is, now we don't want to throw away all of the psychotechnologies, all of the ecologies of practice, all of the wisdom traditions that we inherited from the Axial Revolution, but the language and the con cultural conceptual grammar we have, we're yes. trying to think about it, doesn't fit with our scientific worldview. So we either pretend somehow the scientific worldview is false and we get a fundamentalism, or we just say, well, we give up that all that axial bullshit and we just adopt the nihilism inherent in the scientific worldview. Both of those are actually still bound to the axial revolution grammar because one yes. is saying, they're, they're, they're one is saying, the two worlds model is right and science is wrong. And the other right. one is saying, Right. Science is right. There's no two worlds. And then there, therefore, there's no wisdom and meaning and all that. Right. There's no spirituality. Religion has no function. What I'm trying to do with the help of Chris and Philip and a lot of other people is say, how can we revalorize, bring back to life mm. and, and make a central cultural value everything that the Axial Revolution, including its children like Christianity, gave to us? Mm -hmm without going into fundamentalism or nihilism mm. and, and pseudo-religious ideologies are almost always fundamentalisms that are terrified of nihilism. Mm -hmm. and are, that, that's how you can understand pseudo-religious ideology. Yeah. Fundamentalism is yeah. terrified of nihilism. Yeah. If you don't think the Nazis are responding in a fundamentalist manner to the threat of nihilism within the Weimar Republic, you're not getting and, and you don't see the Gnosticism within Nazism. You're not right. getting what the Nazis were on about. So right. we have to get out of that, that whole way of framing the problem. That's what awakening from the meaning crisis is all about. Wow. Um, so fundamentalism on one side. Nihilism. Associated other, yeah. with just religious. Where does fundamentalism derive from? Just. So fundamentalism belief. Is term, it, it, it arises within Christianity and it arises in, <laughs> I have to give credit to your country. Your country is, it, it, it is the generator of religions <laughs> and religious things. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Like, you know, it, it turns out new religions like Mormonism and you're like, <laughs> and it, it new styles of religion like fundamentalism. Yeah. Um, so 
and, that, and that's what I mean. The United States is such a paradox. It's simultaneously one of the most secular and one of the most religious countries in the world. Yeah. Let's put that aside. But anyways, because yeah. yeah. this is weird for Canadians looking at, on it from the outside because mm -hmm. we're so close to you in so many ways, right? But anyways, um, fundamentalism arose at the beginning of the 20th century, I believe, as a technical term to express a group of Christians and Christian theologians who were basically rejecting what was known as liberal theology. This has mm -hmm. nothing to do with liberalism, uh, like, well, not totally, but, it, but it's, don't, don't, don't identify it with sort of the political meaning of liberal. Mm -hmm. what, liberal what liberal theology was basically proposing was that the core of Christianity was to try and bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. It was, it was, to, it was about right. social policy, helping the poor, Right. And, and again, all of these are good. It was abolishing slavery. Yes. That's part of yes. this. Yep. Okay. Yep. So there's lots of good there. But what was what drove that idea that that was the core of Christianity was this was an initial response to the success of science mm -hmm. and technology. It was like, so Christianity can't really tell us about the nature of the world or the history of the world mm -hmm. or, or, you know, how to build bridges or how to heal mm -hmm. people when they're sick. But what Christianity can do right is it can give us moral guidance and yeah. what's that moral guidance well we should be taking care of the poor we should etc yes now the yes. fundamentalists came back and said we reject that because if that if this continues christianity is just going to disappear it's just going to disappear into right one person once described um, the theology of the united church which is a, a liberal theolo a theological church within canada mm. as it's nice to be nice that's the whole theology <laughs> Right. And so the fundamentalists, I think legitimately, were worried that Christianity was going to disappear. And they were worried that Christianity has a lot more in it than than this, this moral aspect. Okay. It has this, you know, all the actual, they were worried that the entire axial heritage about the cultivation of wisdom, virtue, yes. self-transcendence, yeah. the reality of God, all of that was being uh, lost. Okay. okay. But what they did <laughs> is they basically said, we're going to reject liberal theology and we're going to reject science. Now, they won't say that, but that's yeah. actually what it means. Yeah. Because what they did was they took the view that the Bible was the Bible was fundamental in this specific sense that the these two meanings, the Bible, no, three, sorry, sorry. The Bible is absolutely unique. Right. Right. So no other religion will work. Right. The Bible right. is inerrant. And the Bible is final. There will be no further Holy oh, okay. Scripture. Okay. Right? And so the Bible is it's perfect, it's, basically. Yeah, the Bible is perfect yeah. in, in, in all ways. Um, and then that gets you into tremendous conflict with science because you seem to have to deny yes. you know, the folks monkey trial. You 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 have to deny evolutionary theory, you have to deny fundamental physics, you have to deny the fact, right, uh, that you know the, the 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 sun is the center of the solar system and all kinds of problems um so so then we're stuck today between this i guess specter of fundamentalism and then nihilism behind because right. if you take science to its ultimate conclusion there's no value in the universe one way of thinking of nihilism is a fundamentalism about science that science mm, is perfect irreplaceable and yes. final in its ability to tell us about the fundamental nature of reality ah, so nihilism ah. and fundamentalism theism and atheism yeah. the way it's often pitched right they depend on each other because they're just mirror versions of each other and that that's word yeah go ahead sorry well they share a belief in perfection essentially yes sounds like yeah. yes yes 
which they got from Plato, by the way, but that's another thing. <laughs> um, but um, so, and, and like I said, pseudo-religious ideologies are about perfection, mm-hmm. the master race, right? Mm-hmm. The, the final, the, 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 the final commune, right? All mm-hmm. of these utopic things are about the perfectibility and the idea is they, they give meaning back to history. They gave meaning back to violence, to suffering. And mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do is, is protect us from nihilism, uh, which is, again, why they are pursued with such vehemence. What I am trying to do, and maybe it's just hubris, <laughs> and what I'm trying to do with a lot of people, and, and just like Christianity, there's all these communities springing up about people responding to the meaning crisis with ecologies of practices, mindfulness and movement, mm-hmm, and all that mm-hmm, stuff that mm-hmm. Ray Kelly is doing and other people like, a, right. I'm trying to understand that. And I'm also trying to afford it the way Christianity was a response to the Hellenistic meaning crisis. Can we break out of this prison we're in fundamentalism, nihilism, mm. right? We want to, we want to exact what we got from the actual revolution, but we don't want to identify with it because we, we have to somehow appropriately, we have to optimally grip the science, what science is saying. Mm. Science also needs to respond and be able to, science has to be willing to challenge its fundamental ontology. And this is happening right now, the philosophy of physics and the philosophy of bi- biology in order to, in like science, <laughs> the paradox is science has no place <clears throat> within the scientific worldview. Try to give me an explanation in terms of physics or chemistry of how science exists, what science is. Right. Good luck. It's, it's Good not luck. grounded in anything. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, yeah, because the point is science is trying to filter out all value judgments, but everything is a value judgment at its basis. Is that? That's what uh, that's that. Yeah. So that's well said one of the and that's that's a particular take on science scientism which is Mm -hmm. the fundamentalism about science i'm a scientist i really deeply believe in scientists and i practice it and i will advocate for it but i understand right that there is a threat of nihilism in here and when you say science is supposed to be value free right it's not only that science truth depends on meaning yes (laughs) Truth depends on meaning and not just propositional meaning. The scientist has to have the right skills, right? It has to have the right state of mind. Yes. Right. All right. And so truth depends on meaning and meaning depends. Meaning is relevance realization. And that's a valuation process. And like, where is all of that being acknowledged within the scientific worldview? Right. So unless you can home meaning making, which is also person making, you can't ultimately home science. So you've got this weird thing. You have the scientific worldview, but the science and the scientists have no home, yes. no home right. within that worldview. So there's a there's a there's a, a, an inherent nihilism in that performative contradiction within science. Interesting. Okay. So then, awakening from the meaning crisis is the middle way between theism yes. and atheism. Right. Non-theism. Non. Like non. So. Right. So the non-theism, uh, right, uh, uh, and the idea to try the transjective is trying to get outside of the subject-object divide. Right. Trying uh. to get uh, trying to trying to trying to use the best cognitive science, the best you know yeah. philosophy of biology, 
the best stuff we have from complex systems theory, dynamical systems theory, the innovative work being done in the philosophy of science, trying to and the the, the best work we have on, on going back to the wisdom traditions, because yes. wisdom is a hot topic yeah. right now in psychology and cognitive science, using all of that to try and break out of this grammar of yeah. presuppositions that is dooming us. Yeah, that's what the awakening for the meaning crisis is trying to do. And everything since all of my further projects, all of my series, and then the next big series I'm working on right now after Socrates are all about how can we address this? Wow. One of the reasons I'm talking with you, right, is because you saw a connection to a dimension that was lacking in the series. And, and also it connects to the whole thing I've been working on to try and respond to that gap, which is yes. the role of distributed cognition, et cetera, distributed extended cognition. That's wow. why, that's why we're talking. Yes. That's how we're no. Well, I'm very grateful to have been through this journey with you, this journey. Um, yeah. It's been, uh, it's been incredible, you know, very insightful for me personally. I hope really insightful for my audience. I think the work you're doing is tremendous. I mean, I hope you take great meaning in it because I think it is very meaningful. Um, and I hope to continue to help. I mean, I can refer, you know, I've read a lot about this scope. So I'll share with you the great economic uh, philosophers that I found especially relevant um, to connecting it, it these. Was domains. one of the person you mentioned Hayek? Is that one of the people you've mentioned? Um, I'll tell you. So I think Mises is the most profound in my opinion. Uh, there's also Hayek is one. Hayek's hard to read though. He's just the way he writes is a bit complicated. Rothbard is another. Yeah. The reason um, I mentioned Hayek is a philosopher, friend of mine, who who's also like done work on the meaning crisis? I did the video. Uh, Johannes Niederhauser. He's doing a new series on Hayek, mm. and so I was I was thinking of checking that out as maybe as a way of get and and like he is a profound. I'm deeply 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 influenced by Heidegger. Deeply influenced uh, 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 by German idealism. Like he's a profound thinker. Yes. Profound philosopher. There on uh, on the topic of distributed cognition. There's a paper by Hayek called "The Use of Knowledge in Society," and it's just a paper. It's eight or 10 pages yeah. i can send it to you it's profound yeah it's i would love to read it i would love to read it i want to i want to understand this more because i like i have some criticisms right and i've I voiced them and you've responded to them very respectfully and in kind and i i, I like i want to acknowledge and and like say my appreciation and, and honor you for that i think well, that was thank, great. thank you and it's reflected back because i'm <laughs> just thinking out loud here. So I don't know what's sticking and what's just uh, my meandering and you've been very accommodating. So thank you for that. Um, and I, you know, I think you're onto something really big here. It sounds like, again, you, what did you say earlier that we're all uh, children's children of Descartes where yes. we're, you're yes. pushing the boundary of subject object metaphysics in a way yes, that may break yes. through to something that we need, right? We're confused. We have, a confusion generated by the, the the way we're perceiving the world, perhaps. Yes. And I'm, I'm yes. glad someone is addressing that. So thank you. Well, the way we're perceiving the world, each other and ourselves. Yes. Right. Thank you, Robert. This has been this has been a wonderful time together. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, John.